Welcome to Christ Church. The following is a homily from our Sunday morning gathering in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Enjoy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. Father Everett and I kind of laughed at each other a moment ago, and perhaps we should make t-shirts or bumper stickers, only the weak eat vegetables. <laughs> I didn't make it up, it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible. <clears throat> so this morning in our reading from Genesis, we have the conclusion of the story of Joseph. When I taught at Holland Hall, right before we started the process of learning about Joseph and discovering and discussing that, I asked the kids if they liked roller coasters, because his story is certainly a roller coaster. Here is a Cliff Notes version and a rundown of the story so we can all be caught up onto the same page. Jacob has 12 sons, Joseph is his favorite, and Jacob unfortunately, to his brothers, demonstrates that favoritism when he gives him a beautiful coat. His 11 brothers are extremely jealous. His brothers want to kill him, but instead they throw him into a pit. He is eventually picked up by a group of slave traders and sent to Egypt. And miraculously, God remembers him and throughout his life and carries him, and eventually he achieves the rank of what we would consider the prime minister. There is a massive famine in the land, and Joseph's brothers come to him seeking food, and they don't recognize him. And eventually, Joseph invites his brothers and father into the land of Egypt, and they settle in the land of Goshen. Now, Jacob has just died, and the brothers are likely realizing that the only thing standing between them and Joseph was their father, Jacob. Maybe now that dad is gone, things might be taking a turn for the worst. So essentially, that is the context of our reading today. Joseph is a type and a shadow of Jesus. This is oftentimes the way we approach God. You're coming off this wonderful summer holiday. You're getting back to the daily grind Because the world treats us this way, things don't go well, things change, and all of a sudden the hammer drops. This is how we often approach God. And we think God approaches us in the same way. Ugh, I really messed up this time. That wonderful moment of grace has faded away, and now the other shoe is going to drop. But what we see in Joseph is what we ultimately see fulfilled in Jesus. Have no fear. I, myself, will provide for you and your little ones. And in this way, he assured them by speaking kindly to them. He had no reason to speak kindly to them. And this is what our Savior does for us. He provides for us. He speaks kindly to us, and he has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. 
And we don't have to relate to God either or to Jesus as slaves and think that we can atone for something by relating this way. Nope. We really relate to Jesus more as an older brother. And the terrible thing of the cross God has used for good in order to preserve the whole world. This passage is so powerful and so incredibly beautiful. It gives us an Old Testament case study of what happens and what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 18. Here you have this terribly broken family relationship And the people that need to be reconciled go to each other and they have this really hard conversation. They ask for forgiveness and you see what happens. There is this beautiful restoration. Everyone is crying. It's a beautiful family reunion. Joseph is given to see that even through this difficult thing, God is at work. Now, I have mentioned this story before, but there was a mother whose teenage son was senselessly murdered, brutally murdered. She experienced possibly the worst kind of grieving a human can experience. However, in the grieving process, she was able not only to forgive her son's killer, but now they have built a deep, lifelong relationship together. It opened up a new way for her to see God and herself, and it changed her entire view of the world. Now, I know that that's heavy, and it's really, really hard for us to hear, but that is precisely what is happening here. Joseph tells them, even though you intended to do me harm, God intended it for good. And here's the good part. There is nothing so awful that God cannot bring some kind of goodness or reconciliation or something good because God is love. There is nothing so awful that the power of God's love and wisdom and mercy in some way cannot transform Now, this is not an excuse for evil, but it is a statement of the powerful love and goodness of God. And this is born out of the relationship between Joseph and his brothers. So Joseph is a type of Jesus. And when we come to him, there is rejoicing. There is weeping, tears of joy at reconciliation. And that is God's heart for you. Now we're going to move on to one of Peter's most famous questions. How many times do I have to forgive? I really think that Peter thinks he's being very generous here. Seven times, Jesus? I think he's showing off a little bit, right? I'm willing to do it seven times, Jesus. That's probably more times than the rest of the disciples would have offered. But Jesus says, no, not seven times, but 77 times. Basically, it's limitless, and you just have to keep forgiving. 
I don't really want to hear that. But that's what we're called to do. That's the exact reason we never stop doing the confession in church, because it never ends. Until Jesus returns and restores all things, a new heaven and a new earth, we are going to continue to hurt each other. So Jesus said, you just don't stop. Moving on to the parable that Jesus uses to illustrate what he's talking about. Now, something that's very, very important to remember, this is not a fable with a moral ending. This is a parable which is an earthly example of a heavenly truth. And what you see is an example of how God actually operates. He is compared to this king who wishes to settle the accounts with his slaves. And this parable opens with this slave who owes 10,000 talents. Now this is a huge, huge debt. Probably something to the likes today of maybe $10 million. The punishment for this debt was harsh. And it will not only affect him, but it will affect his entire family. This is an illustration of what original sin is all about. It is a debt that you cannot pay. And a debt that not only affects you, but your wife, your children, and everyone around you. Everyone is infected with original sin. And yet this slave falls to his knees and says, I'll pay you back everything. Why would he say that? He can't pay him back. He knows it. The king knows it. Everybody knows it. Well, this is, not, this is an illustration of how the world thinks that God deals with us via transactions. We all fall into this all the time. But a transaction with God fools us into thinking that we are right with God on the basis of what we do. And if you think that's the case, then you begin to put God in your debt and you begin to think of yourself actually on one level with God. I think it's one of the reasons that our political discourse in this country is so intrinsically self-righteous. It's toxic because we can't forgive each other. But what is so beautiful here is that the king doesn't strike a deal with the slave. He doesn't say, okay, 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 fine. You got three weeks to pay me back. He doesn't do that. It was out of pity for him, it says. Because the servant asked for grace, the king gave him grace. The Lord of that slave released him and forgave him. The Lord actually dies to this debt which would have required not only the slave but his whole family. And so here's, here's the point. As the great Episcopal theologian Robert Ferrer Capon said regarding this parable, none of our debts, none of our sins, none of our trespasses or errors will ever be an obstacle to the grace that raises the dead. At the most, they will be the measure of our death. And as soon as we die, they too will be dead because our Lord 
the king has already died to them. Amen.